0: morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would ask that you would open to Jonah chapter 4. Very grateful for this opportunity to bring the word to you this morning. I count it a privilege and also an immense responsibility because of what the nature of true preaching is. Jonah chapter 4. And in order to get a little bit of the context, I'll start reading In the 10th verse of chapter 3. So if you just look back at the end of chapter 3. We'll start reading there. And we'll read all the way to the entirety of chapter 4. The word of God says this. When God saw what they did. Being the Ninevites. How they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said. He would do to them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the lord and said "O lord is not this what i said when i was yet in my country that is why i made haste to flee to tarshish for i knew that you are a gracious god and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster therefore now O lord please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Perhaps you've, you've seen a movie or you've read a book or maybe a television series and the final scene or the final chapter revealed something interesting about one of the main characters that you had never known. And, and once you have this bit of information, it's, it's very difficult to go and, and read the same book or watch the same television series or, or watch the same movie without, without thinking of that in your mind. Maybe it's some unique fact about that character's identity or maybe it's his backstory, the way he grew up, the conditions he was in. Something that happened to him when he was a small child, or maybe something he did when he was a teenager. When you realize this at the end of the story, it makes you go back and read the narrative, read what's going on in an entirely different light. And that's exactly what's going to take place here in Jonah chapter 4. That's what the author of Jonah is doing. I I I think when most of us think of the book of Jonah, we think of, you know, the cool children's story with Jonah down in the depths of the deep blue sea, Jonah in the belly of a fish. I mean, if you were to go and ask most children today, you know, what are your top five Bible stories? You know, they might say David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. And you could probably make the bet that Jonah and the fish story would be up there. And I think that's all we really think of when we think about Jonah. And so chapter four really becomes missed in our understanding what's going on in his life. But in reality, Jonah chapter four is is strategically structured in a way that the author would have us read Jonah 4, see what is going on in Jonah's spirit, and then go back and see everything that is taking place in his life and read it in light of chapter 4. And so I want us to examine this chapter this morning and see what about Jonah it is that really applies to us. The book of Jonah is very unique. If, If you just look at verse 11, you'll see something very interesting. Look at the very last thing in verse 11, and it's a mark of punctuation. And it's not something that we normally expect to end a book, to end a story. You know, most you know most narratives that you read or you know movies you see they don't end with a question mark. But Jonah's narrative ends with a question mark. It leaves us with questions in our spirit. Why is this happening? Why does why does Jonah, the book of Jonah, end kind of on a cliffhanger? What's going on? And the author does this strategically to to, to challenge the reader. God asks a question in verse 11, and the question goes unanswered. And the whole point is that the reader would put himself in Jonah's shoes and answer the question the way Jonah would have. And so what God, I think, wants for us this morning is for us to look closely at what happens to Jonah in chapter 4 and interpret that in light of our own lives. So what's going on here? Well, we see in verse 10 that, that the Ninevites have repented. Now, I'm going to operate this morning based on the, the sense that most of you in here are familiar with the, the story of Jonah. You know, Jonah gets called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites and he disobeys, he runs from God. He gets on a ship and goes to, tries to go to Tarshish. But God appoints a storm and, and we know that Jonah throws himself. He, he tells the men, throw me in the sea and, and the men throw him into the sea. God spares those sailors and Jonah's swallowed by a fish and then the fish throws him up on the land. He goes to Nineveh again after God calls him a second time and he, they repent. And this is, this is what happens. We see this in verse 10, that, that God sees the, the repentance of the Ninevites and he spares them. But look at the very first verse in chapter 4. We see this contrast. You know, this is the prophet of God. If anyone would be happy that his message succeeded, it would probably be this person, the one who was delivering it. But look at what it says. There's this contrast. It starts with the word but. This contrast, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. You know, that to us, that kind of comes as a shock. Um, you know, if, if, let's say you're in a church and, and the preacher stands up and he preaches a message and, and, and 50 people come forward and accept the Lord. And, and, you know, 10 people are called to the mission field. You know, five people want to dedicate their life, whatever their career is, to serve him. And then the pastor were to come down and were to sit down and would be in a fit of rage that all that had happened. I think for most of us, we'd be kind of shocked. Like, like, is this pastor feeling okay? What's going, is, did he, what's going on? Like, we, we'd have a lot of questions. But this is what happens to Jonah. He preaches a message that God had challenged him, had commanded him to proclaim, and he's exceedingly angry. If you look here, it says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. This isn't just a small, you know, temper tantrum he's throwing. He's irate. He's livid. He is perturbed in his spirit. It's interesting that when you read this, that that the, that the evil that God saw in the Ninevites, to Him, God saw that as evil. But but what this is saying is that to Jonah, the repentance of the Ninevites was actually worse. It was more evil than their transgressions. That that God would be God would be upset. God would be angry. God would have justice on a people, and see their sin. But Jonah would actually be more angry that these people had repented. And so it begs this question. How? Why? Why? What is about the Ninevites? What is it about Jonah that would cause him to be so angry? And that's the, that's the main concern of chapter 4. I mean, if you just look at the first verse, it, the, it sets up what we're going to see about Jonah. It says that Jonah is exceedingly angry. And his theme of Jonah's anger, it comes back through the passage. Look at verse 4. There's a repeated question that's going to take place. It says this, and the Lord said, do you do do well to be angry? And that question comes up by God again in verse nine. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And what God is doing here is he's going to examine, he's going to question Jonah. He's going to question Jonah's anger. And I think when we put ourselves in Jonah's situation and we see why Jonah was angry, I think the lesson the Lord would have for us this morning would be very convicting. So in order for us to really understand Jonah's anger, we, we have to examine three things that are going on here. We have to examine the historical context of Jonah's commission, why he was even called to the Ninevites in the first place. We have to, uh, we have to examine Jonah's theology, what he believed about God. And we also have to examine Jonah's heart, how, what he felt about all of it. So and we'll take those points in that order. So we need to, we need to understand why, why Jonah was called to these people in the first place. Um, the name Jonah is only mentioned in the Old Testament one other time. And I would ask you to turn there. It's the only other passage I'll have you turn to this morning. It's in 2 Kings. It's in chapter 14. This is the only other time the name Jonah shows up in the Old Testament. And if you turn there, you look at 2 Kings 14 and look at verse 23. And I'll just read several of these verses. 2 Kings fourteen twenty-three says, in the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. The God of Israel, which he had spoke, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath Hefer. This is the only other time we see Jonah in the entire Old Testament. And so we, when we look at when we look at what's going on in that passage, we see a couple of things. One, that God's people are sinning. And they're not just sinning a little bit. It says that that Jeroboam the second, who was the king at that time, was causing Israel to do as much evil as they had been doing in the days of Jeroboam the first, which in God's eyes was depraved, was totally wicked. God's people had committed spiritual adultery. They were idolaters. And, and we see that, that although the Lord's people aren't following him, if you look in that passage, you see that God is blessing his people. It says that Jeroboam restored the boundaries. So if we put ourselves in that situation, the kingdom of Israel had shrunk dramatically because of the oppression of foreign nations, because of God's judgment on them through the nations like Syria. Or Assyria. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So if you think about what's going on in Jonah's life right now. He's in a place that's really wicked. And God's blessing them. God's giving them prosperity. Even though they're wicked. And their foreign nation. Their enemy. The Assyrians. Were being driven back. Because in order for them to to expand their borders. They had to take from somebody. And they were taking from the Assyrian empire. So. The Assyrians were known for violent and cruel treatment of their prisoners. They were known for making raids on the northern Israelite cities, pillaging, torturing, capturing people, destroying things, looting, doing a bunch of wicked things towards God's people. So we could expect that Jonah would have no sympathetic feelings toward the Ninevites. He would have no real desire to see them prosper. And, and he would actually take great delight. That, that, that they were not prospering, that Israel was being prospered by God. We can expect that. So when we read at the beginning of Jonah that God called Jonah at this time to go to Nineveh, to go to his enemies and say, repent, God's judgment is coming on you in 40 days. I, th- I think we kind of understand why Jonah would have no desire to go whatsoever. He's thinking in his mind that his country's gaining in power and success. Their oppressive enemies are being pushed back. And, and the Assyrians who are known for all these things, their empire is now crumbling. And now I've been called to deliver a message to them of repentance. The one thing that might actually preserve them. I mean, if I was Jonah, I would, I'd rather just sit back and, and watch their empire crumble. You know, I think it's hard to put ourselves in, in our context into Jonah's situation. But imagine if you were sitting there, if God were to come to you and were to Put an image before your eyes and say, I want you to go and preach to these people. And the image he put before you was on a beach, and it was eight to to ten men, all in a line, all on their knees in orange jumpsuits. And standing directly behind them were eight to ten men in, in black shrouded linen garb over their face, over their whole body, holding knives, about to execute people who were professing to be Christians. And God asked you to go and preach to them. What would your response be? And I think if we're really honest with ourselves, the only response that we would have in our flesh is we would run from that out of fear. But what's unique about Jonah is that's not the reason he runs. That's not the reason he gives. So let's examine the reason that Jonah does give for why he runs. Look at verse 2 of Jonah, chapter 4. Jonah's going to pray to God, and in this prayer, he's going to give the reason for why he runs from God's commandment. And it's not out of fear. It says this, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah doesn't run out of fear. Jonah runs for the exact opposite reason. Jonah runs because he knows that God would forgive these people if they would repent. Jonah had his theology right. We think about a person that's disobeying God, and this man has everything. He knows things about God that are true and accurate and right. I mean, if you think about some of the statements from Jonah's prayer, he says things like. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. He says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. He says, I'm driven away from your sight. He says later with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now here in in chapter four, he's saying that God's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, relenting in steadfast love, abounding in in disaster, abounding in steadfast love. You know, if, if anyone had, we think, had a proper view of God and understood God, it would be this prophet, given what he says. And if that's the case, then look at how far his actions, how different they are, how the great contrast that exists between Jonah's actions and what he claimed to believe. And, and that in itself should be a sobering reality check for all of us. I would hope that, that many of us would claim to believe these same things. That God's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He relents from disaster. I mean, th- truly those are many of the things that we pray to God and we depend on God for. We, d- we depend on God to be that because of our own sinfulness. But look at how different Jonah's actions are from what he believes he says, God, please take for my life for me, verse 3. And he says that it's better for him to die than to live. In other words, Jonah would rather die than see God's enemies repent of their sin. How sobering that is. And I think it might be easy for us now to sit, and, sit in our chair, be a couch critic, and say, man, Jonah, get your act together. What's going on? Why? Why are you really this angry? You shouldn't be angry. You knew, you knew the right stuff about God. You knew that God wanted to, to, to forgive these people. And it might be easiest for be, to be critical of Jonah. But I think when we put ourselves in Jonah's situation and we see just what it was that, that made Jonah have that anger, we have to examine ourselves. I think, I think we, it raises questions in our mind. How, how in the world, how could a prophet of God get so far off track? How could the very representative, the very spokesperson of God, how could he believe the right stuff, but then act so differently? That question probably comes up in our mind, what's going on here in the passage? And God is going to show us that. If we look at verse four, he's gonna question the legitimacy of Jonah's anger. He says, do you do well to be angry? I think there are other translations that render this do you have a good reason to be angry? Is your anger right? And, and God could have just been, could have been very strict. He could have judged Jonah right on the spot for what he believed. But God as a compassionate father comes to Jonah and wants to show Jonah how he's gone away from the Lord. And so we've looked at that what's going on. We've looked at why Jonah would not want to go to these people. He didn't want them to repent. And we see what Jonah believes about God, his theology. He's got it right. But now we have to examine his heart and examine how he got so far off from what God wanted. And if you just look at his prayer there in verse 2 and 3, you begin to see what it was about Jonah that would cause him to act so irrationally in accordance with God's character. I just want to read the prayer again and and listen to the emphasis that I place on certain words and see if you can begin to discover just what it was about Jonah, what was going on in his heart that caused him. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I think if you just look at that, you begin to realize what's going on in Jonah's mind. That Jonah's most important thing was not what God wanted to do. It wasn't what God had purposed to do. It was himself. That Jonah emphasized himself. In Hebrew, nine times the emphasis of Jonah, I, me, my, shows up. It's very clear that Jonah values his own person more than what God wants to do. And God is going to make this very clear because Jonah doesn't necessarily see this. And I think this is true about us, that, that oftentimes we are blind to where we're at spiritually. We, we don't see, we, 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 we say we believe the right things, but we don't see how the way we're acting is so different than what God would want us to do. And God, as a compassionate father, comes to us and he, he orchestrates our circumstances to reveal to us Just how far our heart is from him. And he's going to do that here for Jonah. So if you look at verse 5. We want to examine the way in which God does this. Jonah knew knew that that God had uh, delivered the Ninevites. But he couldn't see his own heart. And God knew this. So God reveals it to him. And he does this very uniquely. Jonah leaves the city in verse 5. And he goes out to see what's going to happen. Presumably. He's praying and hoping in his heart that the Ninevites would, their repentance would be short-lived and they would go back to their old ways, their old sins. So he's sitting there and he's there in Mesopotamia. It's very hot. It's just really unbearable for him. So he builds this booth, sits under the shade and he's just going to remain there and see what's going to happen. And God sovereignly ordains his circumstances. Look at this phrase at the beginning of verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. It's the same phrase that, that, that the book of Jonah uses when God orchestrated the storm, which caused Jonah to be thrown off the boat. The same the same phraseology, the same word, when, when Jonah was swallowed up by the fish that God had prepared a fish. In fact, some translations render the word appointed that, that God had prepared, God had provided. We see God is sovereignly ordaining Jonah's circumstances. This phrase reoccurs in verse 7 and verse 8 talking about the worm and the east wind. So we see that God is ordaining his circumstances. It says that in verse six, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And we see here that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And that in and of itself is ironic. The one time in the entire book of Jonah that it says Jonah is exceedingly glad It's not the repentance of the Ninevites. It's not his own deliverance from the fish. It's that when he has a plant that provides him shade, so he's not hot. That's the one thing that makes Jonah exceedingly glad. But when dawn came up the next day, verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. I think if any of us have had the experience of having your air conditioning go out in the summer... You probably could relate to what Jonah's experiencing. Um, I mean, if you have AC in your house during the summer, I don't know what you keep it at. Maybe you keep it in like the very low 60s. I mean, for me, that would be freezing. I'd be having a jacket on. Or maybe you keep it at a, you know, a balmy 68, 71, whatever. But now it goes out in the summer and, you know, maybe the temperature comes up to, you know, mid 80s. And you, you're suffering. You think you're, you think you're in the desert. You're inside. You have shade. But it's just hot. You come home from a long day of work. Maybe you're working outside sweating and you don't get any relief. You come home to your house and you just feel miserable. You know, you take that and multiply that by about three because that's what Jonah was experiencing. I mean, the average temperature in Mesopotamia during the summer is 110 degrees. That's that's the average day. Here, here in this county, I think I looked it up. It said that one to two, three days a year, the temperature is over 100. Now, I don't know if that's true. I haven't lived here long enough to see. You guys can correct me afterwards. But but the reality is that, that Jonah was just, he was in an unbearable condition. Physically, comfortably, it, it, he just wasn't comfortable. And so God provides a plant to give him shade. And surely that would be a relief. Surely he would enjoy that. But then God takes it away the next day. Which I think if if, maybe if you've had the experience where, you got in like, like you're at a pool or something and you were in a hot tub and then you jumped in the water after, immediately after the hot tub. The water feels a lot colder than it did beforehand. And and I think that's what Jonah probably feel, felt like. One day he's, he's feeling great. He's out there in 110 degree weather and then God provides a plant to give him shade. And he's feeling great. The next day, that plant's gone. God provided a worm to eat it. And he's feeling even worse than he was two days prior because he'd had that level of comfort and then it was quickly taken away. And and then it says even more extremely that in verse eight, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. So I did some research on what this was talking about. So apparently in the Middle East, there are these things called Sirocco winds or it might be Sirocco. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. But what happened is this hot, Dry air would blow from east to west, and it would blow so it would be blowing toward jonah, and temperatures can jump up all the way to one hundred and twenty degrees fahrenheit and this isn't just like a nice cool breeze Jonah's experiencing like if you've been out in a desert and you have hot air blowing on you, it doesn't feel good it feels worse, and that's what Jonah's experiencing and and he is so faint at this point he says. I would rather die than be where I'm at right now. That's pretty extreme. And so God asks him this question again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Once again, God has ordained his circumstances to reveal something to Jonah. And that revelation becomes crystal clear when we look at verse 10 and 11. Jonah answers God's question, says, yes, I do, ang- I do well to be angry, angry enough for the plant. And look at what God says to him. Look at the contrast that God is going to provide in verse 10 and 11. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right, and from their left and also, much cattle. Jonah, he's sad, he's sorrowful when a plant dies. But God is moved with compassion over 120,000 people. And when those people respond in repentance, Jonah's angry. We see this extreme contrast between the way the prophet was acting and what he was believing, the emotions he was feeling, and God's own disposition toward those people. And so it begs the question of us. What level of compassion do we have on those who are unrepentant? This question is asked by God. Should I not do this? And it's not like we should be here and be critical of God and and say, yeah, God, it's okay for you to have compassion. The point here is I should be like this and so should you. That's what God is driving at. And so it begs the question of us right now. Do we really have compassion on those who are unrepentant? Does our heart reflect God's heart? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say no. We have to say that our heart is not moved with compassion. If you look at the description of of Nineveh, you see that it's a great city, verse 11. And you see that there are 120,000 persons, and the specific description is this, that they don't know their right hand from their left. And... And we might wonder, well, what is it talking about? And most, most biblical scholars, most exegetes, maybe you have a study Bible. Well, if you look down in the note, it's probably going to say something along the lines of that these people had no capability of discerning right from wrong. You, that leads some to different conclusions. That leads some to believe that, that the 120,000 people that's being referenced is only those, you know, under the age of three or four. You know, children who can't discern right from wrong, who just do. But I think what might be more clear when we read all of Jonah together as a whole is that this is referring to the actual people of Nineveh itself. That they were in such a place of wickedness, they didn't even know the difference between right and wrong. They were just doing whatever they wanted. And if you were to come to them and say something was wrong, that their violent behavior was wrong, that they would have no response. Because they didn't know the difference between right and wrong. I mean, if you think about Simi Valley for a second, if you were to go online and just type four four words in on Google, population of Simi Valley. Well, as of yesterday, the number that would come up is 126,878, based on a 2017 survey. So it's probably a little different. But it's in that same range, around 120,000, around the same amount of people that are being referenced here. And when we think about what's going on in the United States – in California specifically is this what we think of of that more and more our culture is heading toward people who can't discern right from wrong when we look at the morals of many of the people in this in this in this country in this in this state in this city we see people that they have no conception of right and wrong they just do as their feelings deem them to do to tell someone you can't have an abortion they don't think that's wrong to tell someone that their view of sexuality is not as the word of God says, well, that's not wrong in their eyes. And we see more and more our culture is going to be like this, that, that people don't have this conception of right and wrong. And the response that should come from us as the Lord's people is not to sit here and judge them. It's to have compassion on them, as God did. And so, so the question is, why don't we have compassion Why don't we have compassion on the lost? On those who are unrepentant? And I think it comes down to the same two reasons why Jonah didn't have compassion on the lost. We see first that Jonah had no conception of his own sinfulness. Not one time in the book of Jonah, despite the prophet of God doing many, many wrong things, do you ever have him admit to doing wrong? In fact, even in his prayer, when he's delivered from the fish, He never admits to the sin he had done that put him in the belly of that fish. We see the image of a person who's very quick to accept the grace of God, the mercy of God, but very slow, very hesitant to admit that he had done anything wrong. This makes complete sense. I mean, if you think about the people in your life, the people you know who have the most compassion on those who are unrepentant, the people you know who are the most prone to pray for others, the most prone to share the love of Christ with people. It's probably people who know just how much of a sinner they really are. It's people who have a very big picture of their own sinfulness and an even bigger picture of the holiness of our God. I mean, this is the way Paul, the New Testament missionary felt. If you, if you just go to the New Testament and you look at Paul's statements and trace them in chronological order, you'll see something very fascinating. You'll see in 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, which is written about the 50s AD, that he says he's the least of all the apostles. And then later in his life, he says this in Ephesians 3, 8, he's the least of all the saints. And then finally, in 1 Timothy 1, 15, written toward the end of his life, he says this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe. Jonah had no idea of his own sinfulness. Paul, as he grew closer to the Lord, as he grew more faithful in his walk with God, he realized more and more just how much of a sinner he really was. And and why does this happen? How is it that the the closer we would grow to God, the more we would recognize our own sinfulness? Well, if you were to get on a rocket and fly closer to the sun, what would happen? The closer you got, the more in danger your life would be. <laughs> if you were really close, you would no longer be alive. You would be incinerated. Is that, is that because anything about you is changing? No. And is anything about the sun changing? No. You're just getting closer to it. You need something to protect yourself From the son. That's how it is with our pursuit of God. The closer you get to God. As a sinner. You're getting closer to a holy God. Who doesn't tolerate sin in his presence. So you need something to protect you. You need something to cover you. And there's only one thing that's sufficient. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ. The closer you grow to God. In equal proportion. Because you're growing closer to holiness. Your love, your affection, your view of Christ's work grows magnificently. And when that happens, then you begin to reflect the compassion that Christ had. When Christ says, these people that I see, they are sheep without a shepherd. The one who is the most compassionate, Christ himself. Well, the closer you grow to God, the more you love that person, the more you love Christ the more that compassion is going to be displayed by you. And so when we sit here and ask ourselves, why don't I have compassion? Where's my compassion? Well, perhaps it's because you don't see yourself as that big of a sinner before God. Your view of your own sin is very small in comparison to what God is like. But perhaps the second reason, I think this is more telling of the of, of, of American Christians today, of all of us, is that the reason Jonah had no compassion for the lost. The reason we struggle to have compassion for those who are unrepentant is that we are in love with our worldly comforts. We love the, the comfort that this world brings to us. I mean, think about Jonah. The reason he didn't want to go to the Ninevites in the first place was because of the comfort that his nation was feeling from the oppression of the Ninevites. The reason he gets upset here in chapter four It's because that people had repented, threatening his comfort. And then now here at the end of chapter four, he gets angry when one little part of his comfort had been taken away. And God says that that part of his comfort, that that part Jonah did nothing for. God caused that thing, that plant to go up in the night and he caused it to come down in the night. Jonah had done nothing, but yet he loved his worldly comforts. And so God says to him, you pity the plant, but you don't pity the people. It begs this question of us. What is it that we really love on this world? Do we really love our worldly comforts? Would God come to you and say to you this? And if he did, I think it would be sad. But I think the reality is that he would have to say this to many of us. He would say, you you pity or you love your, your air conditioning more than the lost. Or love your Wi Fi. You love your printer. You love your unscratched car. You love your clean house. You love your high definition television. You love your nice seat at the movie theater. You love the short line, the perfect sports ref, the smooth flight, the lack of delays. You love the perfect meal at the restaurant. But when all those things get taken away, and we became frustrated we become frustrated that our Wi-Fi stops working or the printer stops working or our air conditioning goes out in the summer or, or the television signal's not working or the ref makes a bad call or the meal we asked for at the restaurant, does not come out right? When we become frustrated at all those things, what does it reveal that we really love? It reveals to us that we love our worldly comforts because we don't feel that same level of frustration, of discouragement, of compassion on those who are unrepentant. The reality is the last time you went to a restaurant and ordered a meal and maybe they put avocados on it and you didn't want avocados, you got a little frustrated. You got frustrated about that, but you didn't even get frustrated that the person who gave you that meal had no fear of God, had no no desire to love God. You didn't have compassion on that person. It reveals to us, it reveals to you and I that we love our worldly comforts more than we love and have compassion on those who are lost. God's people today are more like the lost than we are different, which means we would have no compassion. I mean, why should I have compassion on someone who lives just like I do? Why? They're exactly the same. If we are like the world, we will never have compassion on the lost. And so if we don't have compassion on the lost, we have to conclude something that our lives are probably reflecting a form of worldliness. Maybe you're thinking to yourself this morning, you know, I understand what he's saying. You know, I think we all can improve on this, but you know, I have compassion on the lost. I have an unsaved brother or or daughter or coworker. You know, I have a lot of compassion on them. I pray for them. I want them to come to Christ. Um, I share the gospel with them. I call them to repentance. You know, I have compassion on those who are lost. But could it be, that God has put that person in your life to reveal just the amount of people you don't feel that same level of compassion towards. This became very convicting for me recently. Um, I was working a job here in Simi Valley and the Lord gave me an immense burden for the salvation of one of my coworkers. And I was just preparing this message. I began to ask myself this question. Why don't I have that same burden for all the other people who work with me in my store? Why is it just the one person? And it reveals to us in our hearts that, that we, we tend to go for what's easy. I was tending to go for you know the person who already seems sensitive to spiritual things, but I didn't have any compassion on the people who are living a godless lifestyle, of people who have no real desire, no real desire to show up at church. Where was my compassion towards them? And so ask yourself this, you know, the people you feel compassion towards, where is that same level of compassion reflected in the people you interact with each day? Where is it? Perhaps you, you've been waiting in an airport or a subway or a bus. And you see someone, you know, and you're sitting there maybe in the airplane or on the bus or train or whatever it is. Some means of public transportation. You see someone come on. And you immediately begin to start thinking to yourself, I, I really hope that person doesn't sit next to me. I really, you know, you look, you, you look at them you judge their physical appearance, you start thinking yourself, man, I, I would start to feel uncomfortable if that person sat next to me. Where's your compassion? Where's your compassion for the lost? And I think it's one thing for us to have compassion on someone's physical condition, to see someone who's you know, hurting or they've lost a loved one, someone who's sick, someone who's poor, someone who doesn't have necessarily the material things that we do. You know, It's easy for us to have compassion on someone like that you know, even, even lost people have that sort of compassion. I was at work, and one of my coworkers had asked me, you know, have you seen the fires that are going on in Australia? And I mentioned I'd heard of them, and she said, have you seen any pictures? And I mentioned I had and she showed me some pictures, and said, doesn't that make you sad? You know, here's someone who has no fear of God, who's no desire to follow God's commandments, and she has compassion on someone's physical condition. But But for us, we can have that level of compassion, but it's more than that. It's Am I moved with compassion towards a person's spiritual condition? Where are we this morning before God? Does our heart reflect God's compassion? And I think as we think about this, there's only one thing we conclude with. And that is the infinite love, mercy, and compassion that God displayed on you and I in bringing us to salvation. Now, an interesting thing for all of us, an interesting exercise maybe this afternoon in your free time, would be to reflect on the sovereignty of God in your salvation. I mean, think about the family you were born into. Did you have any control over that? No. Think about the parents you were given. Did you have any control over that? No. Maybe they had you in church at an early age, or maybe they were saved later on. Think about the sovereignty of God in bringing them to salvation. When you really begin to trace backwards the way God has brought you brought people in your family to repentance. It shows you the desire, the need for that compassion on others. And it will break your heart with the compassion that Christ had. So as we step here, now we, we have probably, what, 49 more weeks in, in 2020. And we have to ask ourselves this. We're living, some of us in this city, some in others. Do we really have compassion? The kind of compassion that's moved by someone's spiritual state. Or are we just kind of indifferent? Are we apathetic for many of those around us who are unrepentant? And so I pray that God would help all of us. God would move our hearts, break our hearts over our indifference to those who are godless, to those who are unrepentant. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our dear Father, we are we are so convicted by your word we recognize that there are many in our life who we have shown no compassion towards and not just the kind of compassion that seeks to meet someone's physical need but the kind of compassion that moves us to proclaim to people that they need to repent and believe in jesus christ oh god would you smite our hearts with your spirit convict us and that you would allow us to be moved toward those who are unrepentant to share with them the love of Christ that you have for them that was displayed on Calvary. Bless us in this week. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our compassionate advocate. Amen.